Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. Welcome back. I had the opportunity to attend a red carpet premiere event with my partner last night in LA for one of my favorite channels on YouTube called Yes Theory. Amar, one of the co-founders of Yes Theory and Enders, were talking about people often put everyone in this confined box, in this perceived limitations based on their own understanding of what is limit and what is limitless, especially young folks or kids when they hear from their teachers or authorities or their parents that, oh, you can't do this. Oh, you're bad at math. A lot of us tend to internalize and accept those opinions as our realities, and we proceed to live our lives as such. I realized, wow, I started this podcast three years ago with the simple and the pure intention of leaning into my curiosity to talk to some of the amazing folks around the world and dissect and synthesize their experiences because I believe in the universality of our human experiences as a collective beings. And I feel so motivated to continue to do this forward because all journeys and everything that's worthy of embarking on takes time. And as Eleanor Roosevelt said so beautifully, everything you desire is on the other side of fear. I chose curiosity over fear. And three years later, here we are. And I hope and encourage everyone to also identify their fear point and lean into that cue of fear. Because it means there's something there. It means there's some magic on the other side that awaits for you to open that gateway, whatever the gateway means which is the perfect segue for today's sponsor, Magic Minds. It's one of the best brain booster drinks out there. I've partnered with them for the last two weeks and I've been drinking every single day and I feel amazing. It optimizes my performance. It enables me to show up mentally, emotionally, and physically. If you want to check out the product on their website at magicmind.co, M-A-G-I-C-M-I-N-D.co using my discount code, Discover 14 for either 20% off of one-time purchase or 45% off of subscription-based purchases. It tastes like a healthy green drink and it gives you everything that you want from a caffeinated drinks, except more. With that, I'm excited to introduce today's guest, Iris Gonzalez. She's a clinical professor at USC, a psychotherapist, and a licensed clinical social worker. A consistent thread throughout today's conversations is actually about why do we have this urge of wanting to control other people? Why do we have this urge to set these high and often unrealistic expectations? How to build secure attachment style in our relationships, which is one of Iris's meats and potatoes of her expertise, how to accept life as it is, and so much more. This episode is almost like a uh, self-therapy guidebook. And I really believe that this fairly short episode is going to hit you with nothing but golden nuggets. I'm very excited to share this with everyone. And I hope that you discover more something from today's conversation as always. And uh, let's get this train of Discover More started. We shift the language in that in our story. And we say, today, anxiety is visiting. Today, anxiety is in my life. And it's telling me that bad things are going to happen. It's making me worry. It's making me feel fearful. Discover More Podcast is for introspective thinkers with growth mindsets seeking authentic life stories. As a therapist, Benoit Kim highlights the magical relationship between healing and the optimal human experience of what we call life. Here's to mental health being a top priority today and every single day. Let's get this started. Iris, 
Welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So the way I want to start this conversation is about saying yes. And why do you think that magic awaits on the other side? My students, many times when it's our last semester, they will ask for advice. And I see myself as a mentor, not just an academic professor. And so one of the things that I always say to my students is whenever you have an opportunity in life, say yes to it. And especially if it's something that you think, one, I can't do it. Two, it's way too scary. Or three, I'm not going to be good at it. Many times things kind of just dropped in my lap. And my first instinct is always like, oh, no, I can't do that. I'm not good enough. I, I'm, you know, I don't have the skills or it's going to be too hard. And then after I get through that moment of discomfort, I kind of get mad at myself for saying no first and saying no, just say yes and just go for it and see what happens. And what's happened in my personal life is every time I have said yes, it's turned out to be a peak experience for me. When we say peak, we're talking about, you know, sort of one of our ultimate, most mindful states that we can be in. But it, it really enhanced my life, right? And then the ultimate, the reason I tell my students is that at the end of the day, when you do the things that you think you can't do, and then you do them and you learn and you get good at it, like nothing becomes impossible. Like everything's like, I can do anything. And it gives you that sense of esteem, efficacy. So that's why for me, I think it's magical. Yeah, I want to highlight the, like the holding capacity of ants. It's like the idea that even if we initially say no, we can always check ourselves and say yes. It's not a defining moment. Just like, I mean, according to Google, a moment is like 30 to 60 to 90 seconds. So even if at the moment we at least at first are caught up with our fear or discomfort, we have the ability to change that because we are what we say we do. And I think a natural follow-up question is any shining story comes through in terms of the peak moments that you alluded to when you turn that no to a yes internally? Oh my goodness, I have so many of them. <laughs> Let me pick one. And um, I'm a social worker by training. And when I went into the field, you know, I really wanted to just help others. I wanted to be a community social worker. I wanted to be out there in the trenches. And I remember when I was invited to take a position at USC. And what that meant was that I would support the students in their, their placements. So I was like, oh my God, this is perfect. It, it combines the two things I love education and social work. And then <laughs> a few months into it, they say to me, oh, we'd like for you to teach a course. And then I, I almost dropped at that moment. <laughs> like I was like, absolutely not. I, I can't do that. I, I, and I just sat there like, this is not what I signed up for. This is too much pressure. And so my administrator at the time, who was a colleague and, you know, such a support system to me said, you know, take a day to think about it. I think you'd be great at it. I think you'd really enjoy it. I know you can do it. And so I took it on and of all the classes, it was the theory class, which requires so much information. But no, it turned out to be one of the best experiences of my yeah. life. Um, so 22 years later, I'm still doing it and I love it. And something that has stayed with me throughout my academic life course and that's so that's one of the stories around that yeah it's like the idea that we don't know what we don't know and i think a lot of times we like to pre-plan everything seek out patterns seek out certainties amidst the unknown and but then pattern recognition is flawed because the past does not necessarily predict the future but with your story iris once you took that first step amidst fear and discomfort so many more gateways have opened up and we're sitting across from each other here 22 years later, as you said. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I always, I can see the moment. I can feel it. it. It was such a significant time in my life. And I've always held on to it. And I'm just so proud, you know, that I was able to say yes to that. 
If I made the second story, it's a little bit different. So the second story is around um, clients. So we go into this field and we want to help. I wanted to work um, with children in particular that were being abused. I wanted to work with women who were being oppressed. I wanted to work with those that were underrepresented. So, you know, I was really clear, right, in, in sort of my ideology of who and what I wanted to do in the field. I had a colleague who was doing groups for the court that worked with domestic violence perpetrators. And, you know, so kind of think about putting the two together, right? If you kind of look at the big picture. So I hear I'm wanting to work with women who are oppressed. Mm -hmm. And we know in domestic violence, there's also men in particular. In that time, my, my emphasis was women. And my colleague was going to go away on maternity leave. And she said, would you be willing to take my groups and help me through, you know, the time that I'm off during maternity leave? And I was like, no, I don't want to work with perpetrators. I work with victims. I want to help those that have been, you know, mistreated in life. And um, that was not the population that I wanted to service. Mm -hmm. um, and you could see that there was lots of bias, right? In that this was very early in my career. But again, kind of did the same process, kind of sat with it. You know what? I'll do it. And that required me to do groups of uh, primarily uh, male-gendered individuals um, in the evenings, large groups that were court-mandated who were there because they had been found guilty of harming right uh, someone. Here I am sitting there. I'm in my early 20s, so very early on in my career, and I'm sitting there with, you know, 20 perpetrators, in late at night, you know, in an office <laughs> um, in my area. And, you know, Benoit, it was one of the most humbling experiences I had. Mm. It helped me really look at my own prejudice, my biases, my, you know, in our code of ethics, one of the things we have is that all human beings have value. And I believe that I was working from that, right? Especially because I was working from, um, you know, I wanted to work with those that are oppressed and social justice issues and stuff, but it was limited, right? It was to those that I deemed worthy around that. And so once I started doing the groups and, you know, we were able to, you know, still address the issues, not dismiss the behaviors because the behavior is not okay, but really look at, you know, one of the things I tell my students is behaviors are always a manifestation of something else. And what else could that possibly be, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I saw many times was, um, you know, perpetrators sometimes are also victims, you know, not all the time, but many times. And perpetrators also have value. And so with that, you know, through the course of my work with them, I, you know, ended up staying. My, my colleague didn't, didn't come back and I kept the group for many, many years. Um, and, and one fun story that came out of it is we were doing a group and it was, we ended late at night. I think it ended like at nine or 10 PM and, uh, somebody entered our group. I was, you know, you have to put it, if you put it all in context, clients who are court mandated have to pay to attend groups. So at that time, you know, we didn't, we didn't do things like Venmo or Zelle or, um, it was all cash. So I actually had quite a lot of cash with me because they had to pay to attend groups. And somebody who was not in the group came in to the group at the end of the day who was under substance mm. and under the influence. So it was a little bit of a dangerous situation. And the clients were leaving and then they turned around and they saw that I was alone with this person and they turned around said, you know, we'll walk you out and made sure that they walked him out. And then a group walked me to my car. And so these people that I had, you know, deemed inappropriate or not worthy were now taking care of mm. me. So how dynamic is that in life, right? Um, and so that's one of the stories th that I always share with my students and anybody else that I mentor in regards to saying yes. I've always held that story dear to my heart because it really was kind of life-changing for me. 
During my clinical work last year, I worked in a forensic site and all my mm-hmm. clients and patients were forensic core mandated clients with multiple homicide or intimacy violence due to their severe, severe mental illnesses, such as schizo, personality disorders, or com- some combination thereof. And most of them have complex trauma since they were young. And that unfortunately manifests, and a lot of them have the genetic components of 20% to 30% mental illness in their family. And when I first started, I was concerned that how can I treat them as a human being, as a clinician, at the same time still be accountable and be acknowledging what they've done is atrocious, it is atrocities, and find that balance. But once I sat across from them in my sessions, they're just humans just like us. And they're just vulnerable. They just have as many complex situations, difficulties, stressors as we do. Unfortunately, a lot of them didn't have the opportunity to seek therapy, medications, meditations, whatever the resources we have now. So I resonate with that very deeply. Can I ask you, Benoit, what, how did you do that? Like, you know, just besides sitting across them and valuing them, what was your process in that? I actually spoke with my public defender friends. And because a lot of times I think PDs or public defenders gets a bad rap saying that, oh, how can you, how dare you defend the criminals? How dare you? They don't deserve rights, X, Y, and Z. And they told me they're not defending the clients. They're defending the law. Likewise, I think I'm defending the ethos or the ethics of my professions. I'm defending what it means to be a human. So I took a lot of lessons and notes from my public defender friends, how they approach their clients, how do they view them as humans? At the same time, so acknowledging their crimes, what they've done. So that helped a lot. But at the end of the day, it's the person-to-person chemistry. And once I saw and witnessed that they are literally just in a body suits, and they're just as humans as we are, just with different journeys and upbringing. Has that helped you transfer that into any of your other work? I think I really understood the common humanity aspect. And that gave me this humility that you alluded to. I really realized that it's not us who deem someone as worthy or not. We're not gods. We could be vehicles in some way, but I think that really grounded me in a very deep way. So appreciate that. I'm glad you had that experience because it's not an easy experience, especially early on in your career. So, yeah, it was yeah. profound to say the least. But speaking of sharing integrity for all, as you said, I want to talk about your identity as an educator. It's 2022. Everyone and their mothers could upload informations online. And the saying of information's power, I personally disagree. I think appliances is power because awareness without action is burden. And I think a lot of times we're so grappled and overwhelmed by so much information, motivations, inspirations, all these things. But then if you can't apply that, it's sort of obsolete is the way I view it. So I want to go into the more pragmatic or practical realm of knowledge. And I know attachment theory is one of your forefront expertise, and you have a lot of experience in relational components. So what is attachment theory, and why do they matter, especially in 2022 for adults? Yeah, um, I just have to highlight something you said, though, because it just awareness without action is burden. Is that what Mm -hmm. you said? Wow, that's I like that. That I'm going to steal that from you. That was really amazing. Awareness without action is burden. You're so right on that. Attachment theory basically looks at our need to bond with another individual as a basic need for survival. And so you and I, all individuals, we are all born relational. Mm-hmm. We move towards in our early years, our primary caretakers, right? We move towards them, but the moving towards them isn't just for love and affection. That is definitely one of the areas we need for survival, but it's also for physical survival. Mm -hmm. The more connected we are, the more we are going to survive in this world, right? So it is just an intrinsic value. It is something that we do automatically, which is just so fascinating, Mm -hmm. right? That, you know, if you look at a baby, 
they will move towards their caretaker. They will cry so that they get attention, so that somebody takes care of them. And so the more the early relationship uh, bond occurs, the more successful what we call the emotional and physical bond slash attachment occurs. And so with that, there are different ways that we attach throughout our life course. And so what happens in the early year attachment process will play out in your current functioning, no matter how old you are. Mm -hmm. So if you're in your 20s, 30s, 50s, you know, and so on. And so if you're, if you're ever interested in why am I this way in a relationship, you can explain it based out of attachment theory. So just to kind of um clarify, so theory basically explains human behavior. So there are many different theories that tries to explain mm-hmm. why do we do why we do. That's why theory is actually, you know, one of the reasons I love it and I'm fascinated by it because, you know, there's so many theories that can kind of share their sort of tenets of why we do what we do. And so with attachment, it's relational. And most of us are very interested in relationships. And so in order to develop what we call the ultimate attachment is to develop secure attachment. So in secure attachment, we look at at, uh, concepts like the secure base, right? So the caregiver's um, make sure that the child's needs are met securely, right? So if you're hungry, you're being fed. If you're tired, you're being held, you're put to sleep, those kinds of things. So fast forward into today's life, right? You know, whatever age you are, look at your relationships and the relationships where you have a secure base, right? Where you can expect that your basic needs emotionally or physically are going to be met, you have a secure attachment with them. They're safe. They feel good. There's a bond. There's a connection, right? You move towards them versus away from Mm -hmm. them. Okay. The other thing is, you know, in order to, to develop that secure attachment, you have to have what's called the safe haven. And that's kind of like a term, right? But what it really means is that there is a space, right? Be it with a relationship, but in your environment where it's safe, where you can be your true self. So an example of that is a, between a child and a caregiver, that child can have a tantrum. That child can, you know, have a bad day. And they're still going to be loved and they're still going to be taken care of. And, you know, fast forward in it into how you and I are today in our relationships. If we have a safe haven where, you know, we can come home and just kind of like drop our mask, mm-hmm. right? Cause you know, when we're out in the field or working, you have to be a certain persona. You always have to be professional. And sometimes you have to modify your emotions or your thoughts because it's not appropriate to say everything right. that comes uh-huh. up, um, you know, for you. But when you come home, you can be like, Oh my gosh, this is what happened. Or you could have a, a bad day, right? Where you're just maybe in a bad mood or you say things or do things, but yet it's safe, right? You can be what we call the true self. So when you have that security in a relationship, it makes such a difference because not only is it an intimate relationship, but it's a sense of security. Okay. And then the other one is that even if that person is not around you, you know, they have your back. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a child learns that my mom, my dad are going to pick me up from school, even though I can't see them, right? Or even if I can't tell time, right? Little kids can't always tell time, but they know that at the end of the day, there's going to come mom and dad and they're going to pick them up, but they can, they can depend on that, right? In adulthood, that plays out in, even though I might not see you, I know that you're there for me. So a a boys weekend or something like that, and they go off to Vegas, you are secure that even though you are physically separated and there could be possible, I don't know, attractions, Mm -hmm. um, that your relationship is safe. And that's what a secure attachment does. And all of us is really identify like, you know, let's look at how you grew up and was that attachment a secure one or an insecure one? And then if it's insecure, how can we move towards secure attachment? 
because the secure attachment is not just about having that sense of safety, but it's about being able to be in relationships in a healthy way. You know, and so the insecure types tend to be, you know, where we are unsure, you know, in ambiguous relationships where we're doing these dances, I connect, I disconnect, I connect, or I avoid, you know, as soon as you get a little bit close to me, let me move back because you're going to be dangerous to me. Right. So that's a little bit of what attachment theory is. So I want to talk about the other side, as you talked about, which is the anxious attachment style and avoidant personality. Some of the most difficult people I connect with clinically or just interpersonally are folks with avoidant personalities. And in my experience, a lot of avoidant personality types comes with passive aggression tendencies. And I personally view passive aggression as like a disease because you don't know when it's going to trigger. You don't know when it's going to implode, when it's going to bring out the internal to the external. So can you talk about in between the avoidant personality type and the anxious attachment style and what sort of impact that could have in a relationship romantically or otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And absolutely. So, you know, your demographic is all about love and work. Yeah. You know, the developmental stage, (laughs) right? So it's a lot of identity around relationships. So there are two um, insecure or anxious insecure attachments. And so we break them down into what we call the ambiguous and the avoidant. So the avoidant attachment comes from the experience that we internalize from early, early childhood experiences. And remember, so much of this experience is at a subconscious or unconscious level, meaning that we're not really aware of it, but we're, we're projecting it. We're, we're playing it out in our day to day lives. And so what the avoidant was, you know, an experience where the attachment was not secure because the child internalizes that I cannot expect my needs to be met because every time I expect my needs to be met, I get disappointed. We then internalize since I can't trust, right? I can't be secure that my basic needs are going to be met, my emotional needs, my physical needs. I can't trust others. People need to be avoided because they are not safe, right? And so this is a trauma response. This is what happens, you know, when we experience trauma, the world becomes unsafe for us. So this is what we call relational trauma, right? So when we experience, be it in an early uh, childhood experiences, or it could happen later, you could have had a secure attachment, but let's say you were in a relationship and let's say your partner stepped outside of the relationship and hurt you and they ended up with somebody else and it turned into a traumatic experience for you. Now you believe like, well, you tell me you love me, but yet you do this. Now relationships become unsafe. Remember, we're relational. So we move towards people. We want to bond with others. Yet in a subconscious level, we are afraid that they're going to hurt us. So as soon as they get close to us or we get close to them, right, what starts to happen is that our body, and this is more of, you know, in regards to the the autonomic nervous system, right, in regards to the fight, flight, freeze, starts to see relationships as dangerous. Mm. So what do we do? We fight, we flight, we leave, or we freeze. And so what you're seeing a lot of the times is with avoidant, you'll see the passive aggressiveness as one of the ways to protect themselves, or you'll see the aggressiveness. All of a sudden, they'll nitpick things, right? All of a sudden, everything's a problem. Or what we're seeing more and more, unfortunately, that has become more of a social norm is, you know, the terms of like ghosting. I thought we had something, you know, at least, or, or we were conversing, right, to the possibility of having something and then all of a sudden they just disappear on you. In a way, I think the reason why this information is pertinent to not just my demographics, but in 2022, as you said, it's easy to just ghost or not respond. It's easy to just block them on all social media outlets, block their numbers so they can't even talk to you even if they wanted to. And in a way, it's not personal, but it is because it's hurts. It's relational. What ends up happening many times because it's a trauma response, it's because it's been done to us. 
it just becomes a cycle, right? You know, I disappear in you, you disappear in me. I disappear in you, you disappear in me. And then they're like, but why does everybody do this to me? And yet we're perpetrating the same thing that we so are in pain around. So the only way it's going to shift is by addressing it, right? By saying, I'm feeling uncomfortable. I need to address this. And some people are going to respond appropriately and some are not. Um, that's okay. But, you know, you need to work through it because otherwise it's just going to continue. The cycle will continue. Today, a lot of people are allergic to a lot of terms, especially the word trauma, right? And a lot of people like to minimize their own suffering in comparison of other people's pain and suffering. Like, oh, no, what I went through is not traumatic. It's not trauma. I didn't go through the refugee experience like you, Iris. I didn't come here on a boat. So mine's nothing. It's not trauma. It's just a small thing. At the same time, all pains are maximal because pain is subjective. So any thoughts come up to you there in terms of the language around trauma and what that really means? Yeah, thank you so much for asking about trauma. I think we're getting better about talking a little bit more about it, but really, hopefully, having conversations that really validates people's experiences and that people's experiences around trauma doesn't always have to be like a major incident right? Like a big event that happened to them or a traumatic experience, because it's important that they see what they've gone through is important mm -hmm. and it does matter. And it is playing out in their day-to-day -day lives and especially in their relationships. So, you know, so when we use the word or the concept of trauma, first off, it's important to note that it's, it's not a mental illness. It is nothing that is wrong with someone. You're not born with trauma and you haven't done anything wrong. Trauma is just something has happened in someone's life that was unsafe and it was beyond their control and they needed to survive, right? So be it physical survival, emotional survival. So then we have like, you know, what we might refer as the big T's where it's like an incident, right? Something did happen. Um, but we also have what we're really starting to have more conversations about to really help, you know, individuals understand like you've gone through something and it's impacting you is what we call the little T's, right? And that's when we have experienced maybe not a big incident, but we've experienced things in our lives that has created lack of safety for us. Things in our lives where maybe something has not been acknowledged as being a big deal, mm -hmm. But it really was impactful to us. So an example of that, you know, let's say you had a best friend or somebody that was very close to you. And then all of a sudden, that person's not talking to you anymore. And they just like disappeared from your life. That's an abandonment. That is a pain. That is a traumatic experience that makes you feel as though I can't trust. I, you know, this person was my person. And now they just like don't talk to me anymore. It's a big deal. And so when we look at um, our clients or just in general, you know, the general population, most of us have had multiple experiences where things have happened to us that was out of our control, that made us feel unsafe, made us feel like I could not trust, you know, and that's that's what we look at. So when we look at the language of trauma, we look at how are you perceiving the world? Can you trust, you know, that you're going to be safe or can you trust that you're not going to be safe? And I'm not just talking about physical safety. I'm talking also about like safety and your overall well-being, be it whatever it is, right? And so with that, it's important to recognize that many of us are responding to our day-to-day -day experiences, be it our boss, most importantly, our relationships, especially our intimate relationships with trauma responses, meaning that I, I can't trust or I'm not sure or I think, I think bad things are going to happen. So this is a big deal because we really have to look at when we are working from a trauma responses, our behaviors, what we do is going to be incongruent to what our needs are. 
right? So, you know, kind of like reflecting back to attachment, we want to connect and yet we're pushing people away. I think the huge highlight here is that not every traumatic experience is a big T and the pain is pain. And it's really important for us to validate our own pain. It's like the idea that if we don't know how to love and respect ourselves, how can you possibly expect others to respect and love you? And a lot of times people who lack the ability to be self-compassionate, lack the ability to self-love due to trauma or hardships or attachment issues, it's often hard for them to love others. And it's not really their fault. It, but it's just a cycle of this vicious cycle we've been talking about. So I want to relate that to this idea of control that you alluded to in your response. I think a lot of times now, we have a lot of folks have this skewed expectations of what reality should be based on their own understanding and experiences, like the pattern recognitions we talked about in the beginning. And they want to maintain control. A lot of us feel like they, we can control the sequence of life, even though that's pretty funny as a, as a baseline. So what do you think about these expectations and reality? And what can folks do to either adjust or update their reality map so they can navigate the world a little bit better through surrender, through letting go, because life is larger than we are? A lot of people are struggling or suffering or, or things have happened to them. So starting there, like really recognizing that your reality, your experiences are real and they're valid and sitting with that a little bit because we actually try not to sit with that. Mm -hmm. And that's why it gets complicated. That's why it plays out when it's not supposed to play out, right? And so when we actually sit with ourselves and demonstrate some compassion, you know, some care to ourselves, to our experiences, to our pain, then we're going to start to let go of some of that control and some of that expectation. And a lot of, you know, a lot of my clients and even students will say to me, well, how do you do that? How do you, how do you show compassion to yourself? And I say to them, you know, when you're asking me that, I can see that it's, it's a hard question, right? Because you, you haven't practiced it. You don't know how to do that. So the best way of doing it is to look at how you are with others. Most of us are really compassionate, very caring, very accepting, very validating to friends, to family. So whatever you're doing with them, when you're like, oh my gosh, you really did go through a hard time. Oh my gosh, I am so sorry for what you went through. Or, you know, what do you need today? That's what you need to give back to yourself. Okay. If you want to get a little bit deeper, <laughs> another way of doing this is, um, you know, in the field, we call it the inner child work, going back to 10-year-old Benoit and saying, what did he need when he had a hard day, when he had a disappointment, when somebody was mean to him, or when he wasn't feeling good? And you would never say, avoid, pretend it didn't happen, just move forward, you know, stop feeling. You would never say that to a 10-year-old. You would give him a hug or you would say, everything's going to be okay. You know, let's get through this, right? And so, you know, that, that self-compassion is so missing in our world right now because it, we, we've kind of lost this connection with ourselves, but also with others. So, you know, the reason we want to control others and the reason we have such high expectations or have expectations is because we're feeling out of control. It's that simple, right? So once you are in control of your psyche, once you're in control of yourself, once you are able to self-regulate, once you are able to honor the good parts of yourself, but also the vulnerable parts of yourself and even the bad parts of yourself, right? So that you can work towards getting better. You're going to let go of control. You know, there's a book called Choice Theory. The only thing we have power over or control over are the choices that we make in our lives. Mm -hmm. But in order to make those choices that are, you know, helpful to us, we got to let go of trying to control others. 
So rather than controlling, let's say your friend or your significant other, you choose, right? Your choice, you choose the relationship. You know, when we have expectations, usually they're unrealistic and those unrealistic expectations, we set them so high Mm -hmm. because we're already setting ourselves up for failure. It's, you know, it's that self-sabotaging mentality. And then that's also true about controlling others. You know, when we try to control others, we feel out of control, but we're also just pushing people away through control. I love the choice theory because a lot of people might be like, wait, so there's nothing we can do in life. Life just happens to us and we have to sit there and take it. It's like, no, you don't have control of the situations, but you have the control of how you respond to that situations. And that is a lot of power and ownership once you reclaim it. And I just want to put that on the messaging board because life happens and the emotions of life doesn't stop. Whether you're dealing with emotional challenges, life challenges, loss and grief, family drama, life doesn't stop. You still got to work, paychecks, pay your bills. Given all that context, in addition to that, you want to gain control of other people's behaviors who are different from you, who are different genetic makeups. It is a recipe for disasters. But if you just fixate it on what can I do in this moment to what's happening, then I think that's where the power lies. And if I may, you know, I want to highlight that point because once we let go of controlling others and take the risk of looking inwardly in ourselves and what can I control, then you're going to live a fulfilled life. That's like the $100 million question. And the answer is, you know, stop controlling others and look at what can you control, which is only yourself. And then you're going to move towards who your ultimate self is emotionally, physically, relationally, all of that, right? So it does take a lot of responsibility. So, you know, when people get caught up in this whole like, you know, expectations of others and controlling of others, talking about others is because they want to avoid themselves. It's an avoidant behavior. Right. And all that's doing is it's easy to like see others' mistakes, but whatever you're seeing in them, it's about you. So, you know, so we have a lot of fun with that. We call it projection, right? So whatever you're complaining about somebody else, that's your issue. It's that simple. And oftentimes it's simple, but it's not easy. And a lot of times truth is that simple, but because it's so simple, people don't want to accept it. They're like, no, 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 they can't be it. It's deeper than that. Not always, right? So in terms of, I want to provide something more specifics. So for those who have maybe not heard of inner child, you describe it beautifully. Just lean into your childhood self and what did he or she or they need during that time and just replicate that. If you can curate some bullet points in a simple inner child work guidebook and you can hand that guidebook to every listener listening what would be some of the bullet points in that inner child work the workbook would look something like this like the first thing you would do is get connected to who you are and our entire life experiences regardless of how old you are is experiences be it memories you know, uh, age, whatever. So sometimes when people have a difficult with that, I say, you know, just choose one picture mm. that you liked of your childhood. Mm. doesn't matter how old you are. You don't have to have memory. Some people say, well, I don't have memory of my childhood. I'm like, that's okay. You know, and then if you don't have a picture, just imagine what you look like, you know, what would you have been like? Were you fun? Were you creative? Were you shy? Were you quiet? You know, were you outgoing? Whatever it was. Okay. So just kind of stay connected to that because the beauty of our inner child is that that's our most vulnerable self, but yet it's our strongest self. That's the dialect, right? Two things can happen at the same time, Mm -hmm. but the inner child is also the one that's the most honest. And as adults, we have so many masks, you know, we have so many things that we try to let everybody see, like, look how great I'm doing, you know, that kind of stuff. But, you know, deep down inside, we know so many of us are going, you know, to bed at night with so many thoughts that are so harsh or emotions that feel so overwhelming. And that's because we're not taking care of ourselves, right? And and life is happening and these little traumas or big traumas are happening. So I would start there. The second thing I would do is I would just ask, what 
do you need? What did that child need that maybe they didn't get? And identify what that is and give it to yourself, whatever. So if it was like they, you know, they weren't allowed to play. Well, now play if they didn't get hugs, right? Let's start off with hugs, right? That oxytocin. If it was kind words, you know, simple things like you did a great job versus you got an A minus. Why did you get an A minus? That's an amazing grade, right? <laughs> but that's what we hold on to, right? So whatever that is, start to identify what was missing because whatever is missing, it's playing itself out in who you are right now. And that's what we call some of the core pain. And you have the power to change that. Mm-hmm. Only you know what that looks like, right? So taking time to do some self-reflection on that. But like you said early, and I'm sorry, I might miss the quotation. Awareness becomes a burden without action, right? Yeah. You got to do the action. You got to do the action. So awareness without action is a burden. That's what you said. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do with it? And I think once again, this goes into your another expertise clinically in terms of narration therapy or how to use language and the stories we tell ourselves about us and the others. Once again, it's very meta, but all of us are constantly co-creating our realities. So can you talk about what's an effective way to utilize narratives and narrations to either externalize problems or sort of naming the experience so that it improves our experiences or realities moving forward? Yeah, that's another one of my favorite ones. I think every single person, consciously or unconsciously, is trying to narrate their story. Individuals are like in that stage of like, who do I want to love? Mm-hmm. And where do I want to work? What's, what's my career? Where do I want to live? Those kinds of things. That's, that's narrating the story. And so in this type of therapy, what we do is we look at what is the story that you've been living? Right. And is it working for you? Is it the story that you imagine for yourself? Is the story enhancing who you are? Is it creating the opportunities, but is it bringing you to feel like you're loved and that you have purpose and you're validated and you're moving towards your ultimate self, right? Optimal mental health, physical health, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes what happens is that in sort of our everyday life, we lose track of what is my story? And it, it's, it becomes sort of somebody else's story that we're living, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't feel fulfilled. So in narrative therapy, what we do is we help clients or we're all doing this automatically is we can stop and say, what is going to be my story from this point forward? These have been my chapters, right? And some chapters have been good and then some chapters not so good, but you're not stuck there. You can now decide what is your story going to be? So we call it, you know, so we use um, language, right, to predispose our truth. So how are you going to transform your story? What's your new story going to look like? In transforming your story, you consciously decide what is my story going to be like? How do I want it to be? And then you are consciously aware of what's happening and making those choices, But also you're recognizing that your problems are not who you are. So an example of that is we say things like, let's say somebody's struggling with anxiety, right? One of our top uh, psychosocial issues that most people experience, Mm -hmm. just almost, you know, the majority of the population. So if they're experiencing, it's very normal. It can be very overwhelming, especially with um, intrusive thoughts and overthinking. So rather than saying, I am an anxious person, we shift the language in that in our story. And we say, today, anxiety is visiting me. Mm. Today, anxiety is in my life. And it's telling me that bad things are going to happen. It's making me worry. It's making me feel fearful. And in worst case scenarios, it's making me feel out of control, right? Where it leads to panic attacks. So, you know, so we want to help people know that anxiety is part of their story, but they're not only an anxious person. They There's so many other things, right? And so if anxiety is coming to you, do you want it to stay or do you want it to leave? Let's do anything we can to move that anxiety away. 
by getting help, right? Whatever that might look like for the client or the individual or friend or whatever. So in narrative therapy or in rewriting your story, it is such a strength-based perspective. It is such a, you know, individual perspective where it honors who they are, but it also gives them, you know, we talked earlier about that sense of control. What's your story going to be? You narrate that versus being a circumstance of other things. In my story, when I look at my my parents who, even though they experienced trauma and depression because of everything they had to give up, I see them as being so resilient because they said, I don't want this to be my story. And they like did something that I don't think I could ever do. But, you know, they gave everything up and came to a new country, new language, new culture, everything gave up a huge family to be in this tiny little family. And they narrated their story. You know, did they have problems throughout it? Yes, they had to keep shifting things, right? So you and I can do that. And it's it's a it's a great way to really take control of one's life, right? Yeah, I think uh, tied into grief and loss, I view that as I think entire life's journey is about mourning some of the losses, not death per se, but some of our dreams, they, they, they die, right? Sometimes you have to accept the reality as it is. And we mourn our dreams, some dreams die, and the new dreams blossom. We experience loss of friendships, relationships, we mourn, grief, and then we move on and we move through that. And it's a cycle. And the more you do that, the more comfortable you become doing that. And I really want to highlight what you talked about. It's we, every chapter and every new moment, and like I said, according to Google, every new moment is 30 to 90 seconds. So in theory, every 30 to 90 seconds, you get to decide and own up to this new chapter and new moments. And that's why we call it the present, because it's the present that keeps on giving, right? So I just want to highlight that because there's so much power there. And even if we feel sad or something's anxious or the intrusive thoughts or this anxiety five minutes ago, I don't have to accept that as this stuck reality for the entire day. I can rewrite that moment by moment. I want to kind of highlight what you said about loss, grief, and mourning. You know, the more we live, the more we say yes, (laughs) the more we experience life, there's going to be probably more opportunities for losses because things are going to matter to us and things come and go in our lives, right? So there's going to be losses in our lives. And, you know, Grieving is an expression where when we grieve or we mourn, it's an expression that loss mattered to us. It was important. So be it a person or a thing, right? Or a dream. And it mattered to us. And there was love involved in that loss, right? So we're, we're missing that and it hurts for us. So it's so important to validate that that loss was real, you know, and it's, and it's impacting us and it's hurt us and it's, and it's going to take us some time, right? And everybody's different in regards to whatever the loss is or, you know, how long it's going to take them to go through that process of mourning or bereavement. The important thing is to not deny it, Mm. to not avoid it, because then you're not validating that part of your story. Mm. So the more you validate it, the more you recognize that that was real for you, the more you're going to be able then to move forward, right? And hold on to that part of your story, still a part of you, but then you could move on to new stories without complications, you know, and it just keeps you moving forward and just appreciating so much the new things that come into your life, those new moments, right? But you're right. It's all about action. It's all about movement. If we invalidate our own experiences, how can we ever expect others to validate our experiences? And it's like the idea of control going back to earlier conversations, because often a lot of us don't validate or invalidate our experiences. We overcompensate by hoping others will validate everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's not realistic, right? If we don't embrace our ugliness, the good and the bad, why would others embrace the good and the bad and the ugly? We're definitely towards the tail end of the episode, but I want to hit you with, I think, probably the most important questions of the episode so far, because everything we're talking about is we often are perceived as the circumstances or the byproduct 
of other people's narrations and other people's stories, their commentary, well intended or not. And I view life as this sequence of never ending journey of learning, unlearning, learning, unlearning, etc. What does that mean to you? And why do you think it's important to unprogram a lot of these idiosyncrasies, a lot of these beliefs and ideals, oftentimes false ideals that's forced upon us against our knowledge? to get closer to an inner child, to a full circle? Yeah, you know, in the, in the field, we call it becoming self-actualized, right? Your ultimate self, right? Yeah. Um, where you're really moving towards almost like a transcendent state, where it's really about, you know, sort of honoring spirituality versus material things or, you know, validation from others. It's normal for us, you know, to need validation from others because that's feedback, right? We call that mirroring as well as, um, you know, twinship, those things. But, you know, I think why it's important to learn and unlearn is one, it's important that we're always moving forward versus moving backwards. And the unlearning is about saying to ourselves, hey, this happened to me or this was is maladaptive or not effective in my life and I need to shift it. I need to change it so that we don't get stuck. You know, sometimes in our story, we have to get stuck because we have to recognize how impactful it was for us. Mm. And that's part of the validation. We have to recognize like, hey, right now, I just need, need to be in this moment because I'm, you know, I'm healing. It's the, the wound is raw, right? Whatever it is, um, be it something that happened to us or be it a thought or be it a loss or, you know, whatever it is. Sometimes we do need to to sit with it for a little bit. You know, that's that's what, you know, we call processing it, right? It takes time. It, it, you can't just say, okay, it happened. I'm not going to think about it. Let me just move forward and learn something new. But it's also important not to get stuck because when we get stuck, then there's no new energy. There's no new movement. And then we become a, a, a victim of our circumstance. Mm. We become a victim of others. We become a victim of our pain, you know? And so when you learn, when you move forward, you're able to tolerate the distresses that have occurred to us and see them as, oh, wow, that was a big deal. Like that hurt or that wasn't good or that was traumatic, you know, whatever it was, but it was real in my life and I'm going to honor it. I'm going to work through it. I'm not going to avoid. I'm going to work whatever. I'm going to understand how it's impacted who I am and how it's impacting my decisions to maybe say yes or move forward or trust or whatever to work on that so that I can then move towards my ultimate self. But that's, you know, that's like the ultimate freedom that we want to move towards. Yeah, I love the central message of moving through. I personally don't like the term overcoming. Uh, in clinical practice, a lot of people say, overcome your depressions, overcome your anxiety, overcome your trauma. My question is, what are we overcoming? They're part of us, whether we like it or not. And we have to accept that part of us, whether we like it or not, in terms of updating our reality or our maps of reality, and then we can move through it. And similar to what you said, stuck versus unstuck. If you don't get stuck, how do you learn how to get unstuck? It's like the pain teachers, right? So I, I love the dichotomy or this journey of going from stuck to unstuck, going from learning to unlearning, because that is a process and that is a journey. And without journey, there is no lessons. Yeah, it's a challenge for sure. Once again, simple, but not easy. And I think that's, that's the truth of life just as a baseline. So we're definitely uh, towards the end of the episode, Iris. And even during this interview, your tenderness as a clinician, as a therapist, as a professor shows through, even with your voice, right? So that's why I love interviewing therapists on the podcast, because I feel like I'm in a therapy myself in real time <laughs> for free. Um, with that, I want to hit you with the discover more questions, which is the hallmark. Okay. So okay. It's, the question serves twofold. After this insightful conversations, what is a domain in your own life? that you're excited to discover more about after the interview? And the second fold is, what is a domain in our listeners' lives you want to encourage 
or even challenge them to discover more about after the show? Okay, so those are really excellent questions. <laughs> my, my brain is just going in circles <laughs> here. Uh, so the domain in my life after this conversation, one that I think is going to stay with me that I think you taught me, not so much that I taught you or your audience that is staying with me is insight without action turns into burden. And I think think for me, as I look at my story and how I'm trying to cultivate it, when does that play out? Mm. And am I attuned to that? And what can I do to really move towards action? Because I can see that there could be times when it's easy to either intellectualize, you know, pretend that I'm not stuck or not take action, right? in um, my own personal experiences. So I want to thank you for that because that was, like you said, simple but deep. What am I aware of that I need to take action on that I'm not taking action on that's feeling like a burden in my life? I think that's important for me as far as one of the conversation topics or domains that we we discussed. The other thing, you know, again, I just, uh, you know, I'm just so grateful that I said yes to this opportunity because I've had such a great time uh, having our conversation with you and getting to know you as well and just all your insights and, and hopefully, you know, support your audience as much as possible in their journey. For your audience, uh, what I would say is one, what I hope they take from this conversation is uh, the domain of saying yes, <laughs> especially to things that are hard. I just, you know, the freedom that it's going to bring you and that sense of accomplishment, but also esteem and that ability that if I can do hard things, I can do anything. It's just going to create so many opportunities, but just open up your world, right? And of course, that's with boundaries. It's right. not just a yes to everything. Yeah. It's, it's a very thoughtful yes. The second thing I would say is we, we did a lot of conversation on validation of people's experiences, and that might look like a little trauma or a big trauma, but it also could be other things that are going on, be it, you know, their attachment style or even their inner child, right? And really to to slow down so that the word that would capture that, to ask themselves on a day-to-day -day basis, have I been compassionate to myself today? Mm. Am I practicing compassion to myself? I think when we slow ourselves down and do some self-reflection at the end of the day, you know, and and really sit with ourselves for a little bit, right, in that mindful state of today. How am I today? What do I need today, be it that inner child or that adult child? You know, doesn't matter. Where's my compassion, right? On a spectrum, did I show it? Did I not show it? And then towards others. Such a simple practice. It's just such a hard practice. Yeah, no, uh, like I said, I, I love our classes. I love the way you teach. And I'm honored that you took away something from this conversation. And that's my hope so I can, it's a mutual process, right? When the intention is there, when the respect is there, when the awareness is there through a free exchange of conversations, ideas emerge. And I think that's what makes conversations and storytelling very powerful. One statistics I want to share in terms of self-compassion versus compassion for others. I think the latest research shows about 78% of us extend more grace and compassion for others than self-compassion. 78%. That means most of us are in that category. And just let that sit with us. What does that mean that we care more about other people than ourselves? Because this is cliche, but you can't pour from an empty cup. We must be fulfilled for us to fulfill other people. And that's just what I want to leave in, in response to what you just said. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. If I may, it goes into... Like I said, a lot of people are like, I don't know how to show compassion, but they know how to be kind to their friends. They know how, then I'm like, okay, whatever you're doing to your friends or to others, do it to yourself. So yeah, thank you for that. That's an amazing statistic. This is where I roll out the red carpet for you. I know you're not a content creator or have anything to uh, share, but if some of the listeners who are gracious enough to tune in for this episode, they have more questions about attachment style, 
inner child work, emotionality, everything in between, and they want to just follow up with you, uh, where could people connect with you, maybe find you, and just to uh, bring some of these insights and gain some more action steps by following through? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a practice in um, Orange County. So I'm available uh, either via email address that I use for my uh, professional work. Um, and they can reach out to me that way. And I can provide you with that information. Also, they can find me at USC. <laughs> they can find me on campus. Yeah. Uh, when I'm teaching, I always welcome, um, you know, uh, conversations um, and am open to talking to anyone, especially in regards to continued growth. Perfect. And then I will include all that information in the show notes. As a podcaster, I have to do the marketing, SEO, social media, team management, outreach, which are the parts not is not as enjoyable because that's not really storytelling. But this is a part that really drove me to start this initially as a passion project, now as a business, because these conversations are so rare nowadays, right? Everything's about instant gratifications, expediency, convenience, five seconds, headliners, reels. And but I believe in long form conversations because I think the essence of life are in the gray and that's the nuances. So I very much appreciate your time today, seriously. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, this work that you're doing is so important, not only for your own personal growth, but for your audience, those that you're reaching. Oh my goodness, I you know, that's amazing that you're doing this. And I love your creativity around it. So you have a lot of natural tendencies. So Thank you again. It was really fun, actually. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And yeah, to all the listeners, um, if you're listening to this on audio platform, whether that's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your dosage of podcasts, if you can hit that subscribe and share this episode with one person, if you found any value in today's conversations, that's how you motivate me to seek out these amazing folks around the world, around different disciplines so that we can all collectively discover more insights, discover more actions and toolkits to enhance our life little bit by little, because life definitely isn't easy. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button and like. That also helps to propel the channel forward so I can recruit more amazing, amazing guests as the channel and the show grows. Um, with that, I always appreciate everyone's attention and curiosity to tune in to discover more something whatever you want to discover more about. And as always, your attention is immensely appreciated. And I hope to see you again at the next week's train of Discover More. Thank you for listening.